0: This week we moved from the Creed of Nicaea to the Creed developed at the Council of Constantinople. Nicaea was in 325, the Council of Constantinople was 381, so you get about 65 years between those two. As I've mentioned to you before, this was a period of great intensity around developing the language in particular related to the doctrine of the Trinity. By the time we get to the end of the Creed, or the end of the Council of Constantinople, and that Creed is in place, we have pretty much settled the discussions about the nature of the Trinitarian God. The orthodox position on uh, uh, three persons, one nature, is uh, pretty much instantiated by this point. Now, let me make a little side comment here on this whole discussion about the doctrine of the Trinity. I often uh, have people comment on how confusing the doctrine of the Trinity can be because they say, how can something be three of something and one of the same thing at the same time? Well, that's not what the church claimed. The church did not say that God was three of something and also one of the same thing. What the church affirmed that there was three of something in God and one of something else, and specifically what the church said was that there was one divine nature but three distinct persons. With us as humans, there is a human nature that we all share. There's something that is the humanness that is in all of us, and yet there are individual persons. Gregory of Nyssa, in fact, used this particular example to try to make sense for people of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, he recognized, of course, that when you apply human analogies to God, at some point they're going to break down. The degree of um, unanimity, the degree of agreement, the degree to which uh, the members of the Trinity give themselves to each other is more complete than it could ever be in our human existence. And yet Gregory thought that this was a good way to help people understand what the church was affirming. One divine nature divided amongst three individual persons who were so tightly wrapped together that we can think of them as one God. You'll notice in the Creed of uh, Constantinople that we get a lot of repetition of the language regarding Jesus, right? That was the first debate, and that's why that was given so much attention at Nicaea. But in Constantinople, the discussion expands, and so we see more attention to the Holy Spirit in this one. In fact, this will have the most robust description of the Holy Spirit of any of the creeds that we look at. You'll also notice as we read through it that some of those things from the Apostles' Creed that were uh, placed there at the end the affirmation of the church and the forgiveness of sins and so on. Those have been worked back in now to the Creed of Constantinople. Now I mentioned to you earlier that in some cases folks roll these two things together and they call it the Nicio-Constantinopolitan Creed or maybe just sometimes it's just called the Nicene Creed but what it really is is what's uh, the product that comes out of the Council of Constantinople. So there's some confusion if you look up the um, Creed of Constantinople, you may well um, find that it's just marked as the Nicene Creed. So don't let that confuse you. What I would encourage you to do though, and this shows up very handily in the Wikipedia site on the Nicene Creed, is to set the two side by side and look at them. And this will give you a clearer sense of what the developments were that were going on between Nicaea and Constantinople. Let's take a look now at the Creed of Constantinople. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. So far, it's very much like the Nicene Creed. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. By him all things were made, who for us humans and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. Now what you notice at the very beginning, as I said, is that the affirmation about God the Father is very similar to what we see in Nicaea and in the Apostles' Creed. And then the first part uh, about Jesus seems to be cleaned up just a little bit. It reads a little more smoothly than it did at Nicaea, but the contents are pretty much the same. Only begotten, right? Uh, Jesus is begotten or the Son is begotten of the Father, and there's only one of those. The only begotten Son of God. And then the eternality of that beginning is mentioned as well. Begotten by the, of the Father before all worlds. Then the strong affirmations that Jesus is fully God. Then we get some things added back in that were in the Apostles' Creed, but not in the Nicene Creed. The recognition of Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. His death, his burial, and then his resurrection as well as his ascension into heaven, and the affirmation that he will come again someday to judge the living and the dead. But the big difference, of course, between the uh, Creed of Constantinople and either the Creed of Nicaea or the Apostles' Creed is how much more we have to say now about the Holy Spirit. So you see, it really gets to be a, a relatively small step. The initial struggle was how do we affirm more than one person, if we're going to, you know, in the Godhead, if we're going to remain monotheistic. But once that was done, once the door was open to being able to affirm some sort of differentiation within God, it was a relatively small step then to affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit as well. And here we see that the affirmation that the Holy Spirit is also God. The giver of life proceeds from the Father. You see a different kind of relationship here. The Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds. Again, these are, I often think of them as metaphorical terms. They're ways that the church is trying to articulate the distinctions, the differences between this one God who is yet three persons, so that the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds. Again, it's a description of something in the inner life of God that we probably can say no more about. And then we get those things from the Apostles' Creed back in here as well. The affirmation of the church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. So as I said, by the time you get finished with the Creed of Constantinople, the, the orthodox treatment of the deity of the Son and the de- deity of the Holy Spirit have been completed. And now you have this full-orbed creed which addresses all three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This remains largely the structure of the doctrine of the Trinity from that point forward in the church. Of course there are always challenges, always questions that arise, but this has remained at the core of the Christian doctrine of God. As you can guess then, with those set of issues settled, what comes up at Chalcedon is an entirely different set of questions. and Focuses those, that set of questions focuses back on the person of Jesus. And next week, we'll turn our attention to the Creed of Chalcedon.